Welcome to Hope Community Church of Hickory. We are so glad you decided to join us online. Make sure and hit the follow and notification buttons to keep up to date with all of our sermons. Here is our latest message. Let's go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, you can go and open up to John chapter 19. We're going to finish our series. If you're just joining us, we've been going through a series entitled This is Jesus pretty much ever since um, we launched here, um, since, uh, since January. And we've been walking through the Gospel of John together. And the reason why we wanted to start off the life of our church here with this uh, Gospel is because we firmly believe the more you understand who Jesus is, the more you'll understand who you are. I really believe we won't fully understand ourselves until we know our Maker. And uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, the fullness of God in bodily form. So if we truly want to understand who we are, what our purpose is for being alive on this planet, we will never understand those answers unless we first understand who Jesus is. And whenever John writes his gospel, he doesn't really write it as uh, like a reporter reporting on things that Jesus did. His primary purpose is to show who Jesus is. And that's exactly why we've been working through this gospel together. And we're going to finish up that series today. And then next week, we're going to begin a series entitled Step by Step, where we're going to be walking through the different fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. So come back and join us for that. Now, for those of you that, that know me, you, you know that I am a pretty avid sports fan. And that's putting it very mildly and very lightly. Uh, but in the midst of the passion that I have for my sports teams, I'm not a big trash talker. And uh, most people don't believe that about me because I'm a diehard Philadelphia sports fan. And they don't believe that I'm not a big trash talker, but I'm not. Now, the main reason why I don't talk a lot of trash it isn't because I want to be respectful. It's not because I want to be a good sportsman or all pastoral in my fandom or anything like that. The real reason why I don't like to trash talk is because I'm terrified of the jinx. Now, in the, great, in the words of the great theologian Michael Scott, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious, right? And, and I, I believe that if I talk any trash before a game is played, my team's already going to lose. I'm going to make them lose right there. I'm not that bold. I just can't do it. So it astounds me some of the sports fans that I know that are so bold in their proclamations and all the trash that they talk before games even played. What really gets me is the athletes that can make these bold predictions before games ever played. And it's really astounding the ones who can back it up. You know, one of the uh, most famous trash talkers in sports history was Larry Bird. Larry Bird was known for mouthing off to other teams, and he was also known for backing it up. And he was known for calling his shots. There was one time... Uh, whenever he was playing his, his biggest rival, the Los Angeles Lakers, and um, the Lakers were up by one or two points. There was enough time for one play, one more play, and the Lakers are in the huddle. They drop their defense, and then they break the huddle, and Larry Bird is right there waiting on him. And he goes to James Worthy, their best player at the time, and he says, look, I'm going to go stand in that corner over there. Guy's going to come set a screen for me. I'm going to curl off the screen, catch the ball. He's literally telling him the play. So I'm going to catch the ball, I'm going to come off the screen, I'm going to shoot the shot, I'm going to end the game. And then he does it. He goes right over the spot he said he was going to go, curls off the screen, catches the ball, shoots the shot, ends the game. It was astounding. One of the most mind-boggling shots that that Larry ever called uh, was against the Atlanta Hawks. 
And this game was not close. They literally ended with like 60 points, uh, this, this game. And throughout the game, he was in the groove, and he was like telling the Hawks players on the Hawks bench all the shots he was going to take and what he was going to do. And if you watch clips of this game, like the Hawks players, they're like high-fiving each other. They're laughing. They're having a good time, like falling over whenever Larry makes a shot he said he was going to make. And at one point, he looks at the bench, and he just goes, rainbow trainer's lap. And he's like, oh, what does that mean? Like, these guys are, like, excited in anticipation. What does he mean? What's he going to do? And then he proceeds to catch the ball, shoot this high-arcing, fade-away rainbow jump shot, and falls into the trainer's lap on the bench while the shot goes in. Like, are you kidding me? Can you imagine having that much boldness, that much skill, and that talent to be able to call your shot like that and also be able to back it up? Now, the reason why I share that with you here on Easter Sunday is because no one was ever better at calling their shot than Jesus. And no one ever called a bigger shot than the one that Jesus called. Even when they tried to defend it, they couldn't stop it. Three times in each of the first three Gospels, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. One of those predictions is found in Luke 18, whenever he writes and taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets, he's speaking of himself. So he's saying, everything that's written about me by the prophets will be accomplished. I will be delivered over to the Gentiles. I'll be mocked and shamefully uh, treated and spit upon. And after flogging me, they'll kill me. But on the third day, I'll rise again. And sure enough, after Jesus' six completely unjust trials, he gets a sentence he does not deserve. And John chapter 19 begins with saying, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. He called that. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe that came to him, mocking him. He called that too, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him and beat him with their hands. And even though Pilate continued to try to reason with the people to let Jesus live, their voices prevailed. Pilate was scared he might lose his job if a riot were to occur. So they have Jesus carry his own cross up a hill. He's too weak and wearied by the beatings that he's already received that he can't carry the cross by himself, so he has to get some help. And when they get there, they lay him upon it. They drive railroad tie-sized nails through his hands, his wrists, and his feet. He's hung up in the most public street corner in town between two common thieves. And while time passed, the Roman soldiers, they decide to make a game of it. They, just, they gamble for his articles of clothing since he's famous and all. So Jesus hung there for about six hours, slowly suffocating to death on his own blood. I'm sorry if that's graphic, but I think we deserve to have a picture of what's really going on in Jesus' life. And then in verse 28, John writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Don't brush over that final phrase there. He gave up his spirit. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, no one took Jesus' life. He gave it. 
He was very clear about this in John chapter 10 where he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it. In chapter 7, they didn't like his teaching in the temple, and it says they came and tried to seize him, yet no one could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. No one took his life, but he gave it. In Luke 4, it says all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard the things he was saying. So they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff, but he just walked through the crowd and went on his way. Why? Because no one could take Jesus' life. He could only give it. And finally, like last week, we saw last week in John chapter 18, whenever they come to arrest Jesus, Jesus, he steps toe-to-toe with this squadron of soldiers. And the original language gives us a picture. There's 600 people, 600 trained individuals coming to arrest Jesus. Jesus steps and faces them head on. And he says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus just merely declaring in three words his identity was powerful enough to knock a mob of soldiers to the ground. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it. And why did he give it? What did Jesus mean when he was on the cross and said, it is finished? What is finished? Well, you know, the week before last, we were having some trouble with our HVAC unit at the house, and uh, we thought that it was just going to be some some minor repairs, but um, after having a couple of different professionals and a couple of different opinions come look at it, it was determined the entire unit had to be replaced. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm on a church planner's salary. We don't really have all of that money um, up front to pay for an entire HVAC unit for a house all at once. But what they did was they set us up with uh, two-year interest-free payments, right? So we have some time. Now, we can choose just to make the minimal payments on the HVAC from here on out, but eventually there's going to be a much bigger bill that's going to come due. You see, whenever sin entered into the world, it put a charge against us on our account. It's a bill that none of us could afford. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, it says without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission or no payment for sin. So what God did is he set up a temporary system which people could make a sacrifice of a spotless animal to make an atonement for the sin in their lives every so often. But that only served as minimal payments. Eventually, there was going to be a much bigger bill that was going to come due, and someone was going to have to pay for it. But John tells us that because God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, his one and only perfect and spotless son, and he willingly gave himself up to be that last and final sacrifice. And as he shed his blood on the cross, he said, it is finished. The bill has been paid. The debt has been wiped clean. There is no further payment required. But he didn't stop there. Right? That's not the whole play. When he called his shot, he didn't just predict his death. He also predicted his victory over death. He predicted he would rise again. And it was so widely known that Jesus called this shot that whenever he was buried, the religious leaders had guards set up at the tomb, and they had the tomb sealed in case anyone came and tried to fake a resurrection or try to prove him right. 
But Matthew 28 tells us, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And then the angel told the women there, don't be afraid. Because I know you were looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. He called it. Now, I don't know about you, but if this is true, and there was a man who claimed to be God in flesh, and to prove it, he said he was going to be brutally murdered for the sake of other people, but then raise himself back up from the dead three days later, and then does it, Well, I'm going to follow that guy. (laughs) I think I might listen to what he has to say. And now I don't just believe this because I read about in a book. Like these are actual eyewitness accounts of people actually seeing this happening. This is historical eyewitness. John says, hey, I'm a witness to this. John, speaking of himself in chapter 19, verse 35, said, I saw it and bore witness. My testimony is true. And I know I'm telling the truth. I'm telling you this so that you might believe. And again, in chapter 21, he ends his gospel by saying, this disciple is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know, we know that his testimony is true. I love this part. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Isn't that beautiful? But John says, we know that this testimony is true. Now, Who's the we here? Well, Paul, he gives us a list in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. And last of all, he also appeared to me, Paul says. Not to mention the 120 people that were gathered together that saw him ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1. This is not just a couple of people claiming that they might have seen something. These are hundreds and hundreds of personal eyewitnesses that know this to be true because they saw it. And the way that he appeared to some of these people can be so encouraging and uplifting for us today. Because they give us some insight to who Jesus is and who he wants to be for us if we allow him to. We see the first person that he appeared to was Mary Magdalene. Now, John, he's mentioned Mary Magdalene a few times throughout this gospel. She was um, the, one of the sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus rose from the dead. And then after Lazarus' resurrection, Mary is so overcome with gratitude that she washes Jesus' feet with $50,000 perfume. Luke tells us a story about whenever Jesus was visiting Mary and Martha. Martha gets frustrated with Mary because Martha, she's in the kitchen and she's serving. She's making sure everything's taken care of. And she's, she's working and making sure that the party is as good as possible for everybody. And Mary's not helping her. Where's Mary? Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, just soaking up every word he has to say and every moment she gets to spend with him. And we get a little understanding of why Mary was so attached to Jesus because Matthew tells us that whenever 
Jesus first met Mary, she was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus delivered her from that. And ever since then, she just wanted to stick as close to Jesus as possible. You know, I, I once heard a testimony uh, from a lady who uh, had been set free from demonic possession. And she said whenever she was delivered, it felt like 90% of her body was missing because she had lived with it for so long. So if that's true, you can imagine how Mary would have felt after being delivered from seven. And the only option she thought she had to fill that emptiness was Jesus. <laughs> but that's exactly what Jesus does for us. It's our first point for today. Jesus fills the empty. I firmly believe that every single human being on this planet is born with a God-sized hole in our lives. And we do everything we possibly can to try to fill that hole. Sometimes we turn to drugs, sex, and alcohol. A lot of times it's not even that drastic. A lot of times we turn to success, money, business, academics, relationships, parenthood, doing as many good things as we can. The list can go on and on. And so many of us spend so long trying desperately to find whatever that thing's going to be that's going to fill our lives, to give us a sense of fulfillment. But none of those things can ever be the fulfillment of your life, even the inherently good things. And they become unhealthy whenever we put the pressure on those things to fulfill our lives. But the only one who can fulfill your life is the one who gave you life in the first place. The one whose very image you were created in. You were made to live in a relationship with God. And if that relationship is not right, you will never find fulfillment in your life. Now Mary had that relationship. Jesus was her everything. But then she laid there at the foot of the cross while her everything was being taken away. And the very first chance she gets as dawn breaks the morning of the Sabbath, after the Sabbath. As soon as dawn broke, she made her way to Jesus' tomb. She's going to make sure that his burial is as perfect as it could possibly be. His tomb is as perfect as it could be. She's doing anything she can just to feel a little close to Jesus again. But when she gets there, the body's gone. And now she's not thinking at this moment that there's been a resurrection. She's thinking someone took his body away. It's like her everything is being taken all over again. It's being taken away even further. And in John chapter 20, he writes in verse 11, says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. She is so distraught that seeing two angels in the tomb where Jesus was doesn't even faze her. And in verse 14, it goes on to say, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. She said, her woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. You know, studies show that one of the most beautiful sounds to a human being's ear is the sound of their name being called by a loved one. And Jesus gives her that. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Now this is how good Jesus is. 
in the midst of working out all of the eternal and spiritual ramifications for the salvation of humanity, he still takes out the time to go see Mary and make sure that she's okay, (laughs) to give her all of her fulfillment back. And Jesus didn't just let her know that he was there, but then he gives her a mission. Think about it. Mary's essentially the first Christian here, believing in the resurrection. (laughs) She's essentially the first evangelist, giving the first gospel message that Jesus had rose from the dead. Mary's life has never been so full. And then she goes to tell the disciples what she saw (laughs) and what Jesus has said to her. And then later that evening, the disciples are gathered together in a room. and They're they're all locked up in there. They're scared the Jews are going to come and try to kill them next. So they're locked up. They're hiding in this room. And then Jesus just, boom, appears right in the middle of them. And he says, peace be with you. Now, why does he say that? Because they're in the middle of the locked room, and the guy they saw get killed is now all of a sudden standing there. You might need some peace in that moment, too. He says, peace be with you. It's okay. Don't be scared. It's me. I'm alive. And then he spends some time giving them their fulfillment and their purpose back. And everyone's excited. Everyone's mind blown. Well, everyone except one, because while Jesus appeared to all these disciples, now Thomas, he had gone on a Chick-fil-A run, so he had missed it here. And then whenever he comes back, they're like, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. We saw Jesus. He was here. We spoke to him. We saw the scars from the cross. He's back. Thomas is like, you kidding me? I think Thomas gets a bad rap. I don't really see Thomas as doubting Thomas. I think he's frustrated. I think Thomas has some FOMO here. I think Thomas just feels left out. You know, if if I saw my brother Matt, my brother Matt, if I saw him get killed, right, and he was dead, and three days later, now everyone else say, hey, Matt's back. We saw him. I'm like, are you kidding me? He's not going to come see me? I'd be upset too if I was Thomas. (laughs) Now, Jesus, he's going to make Thomas sweat it out a little bit, a little over a week. Verse 26, it says, eight days later, the disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said again, peace be with you. Then he looks at Thomas. Now, Thomas feels very awkward in this moment. (laughs) He looked at Thomas. He says, put your fingers here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? But you blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You know, one of the things that really sticks out to me about this story is that Jesus is intentional about showing his scars. It's the first thing Jesus does. To prove, he shows his scars there. And I think there's got to be a lesson in that. Because for one reason or another, we've created this church culture, this Southern Bible Belt mentality, where we feel like whenever we come to church, we got to pretend that we, we live these squeaky clean lives. We got to pretend that we're not struggling, that everything's okay at home, that we haven't experienced any hurt or trauma, that we haven't struggled with any deep issues of sin. We got to pretend that we got it all together. But you know, there's no redemptive power in putting on a church face, there's no salvation power in just playing church. 
And whenever we pretend that everything is squeaky clean, all we do is we just rob the gospel message of its power. See, Jesus didn't hide his scars. He didn't pretend that they didn't happen. He didn't let it embarrass him. He didn't change the conversation and say, you know what, guys, that was just way too painful of experience. I don't want to relive that right now. He took the most painful experience he ever endured and used it to show his greatest power and his greatest glory. Now, what if, now I say this to encourage you, and I say this with much love. What if we were able to consider that some of the darkest and most painful experiences of our lives could actually just be a catalyst for the greatest power in our lives? God loves to take what the enemy means for evil and turn it for good. We serve a God who works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you know what all things means in the original language? It means all things. (laughs) He works it all out. But you see how he turns what the enemy means for evil, like even the cross, right? The cross was supposed to be a symbol of shame, of death, defeat, embarrassment, dread, terror. But Jesus turned it into a symbol of hope, a symbol of victory and power and life. And I'm telling you, he can do the same for your scars. He didn't hide his. You don't have to hide yours. Only God, only God can take the tragedy of your life and turn it into a powerful testimony that not only strengthens you, but also everyone else around you. You see, because scars may be proof that I've been hurt, but scars are also proof that I've been healed. See, Jesus doesn't do away with the past, but he can bring power to it. So first and foremost, we bear our scars before God. We get honest with him about the hurt and the pain that we've experienced. We can express the frustration and the confusion we have surrounding it. And the more we intentionally do that, the more and more he brings us through a healing process. And he strengthens those wounds. And he showers us with love and with acceptance and gives us more of an eternal perspective. And then he eventually brings us to the point where we can openly share our experiences so God can use them to help bring healing to someone else who's gone through something similar. All because of the goodness and the presence of Jesus. By his wounds you are healed. Amen. You don't have to hide your scars. You don't have to go through this life bearing that burden alone. In fact, Paul tells us that the way we fulfill the law of Christ is if we carry or bear one another's burdens together. And because of the resurrection, Jesus shows us that he brings healing. But he also brings restoration. And we see in Jesus' third appearance that he takes the time to restore Peter, who at this point would have been filled with regret. That's our last point for today is that Jesus restores the regretful. Now, real quick, I want to make a distinction between scars and regret. Because scars in the context that we're talking about is something that's happened to you. Regret is something that you might have done. See, scars are something that's happened to you that's outside of your control, like, like accidents, diseases, or someone sinning against you, or anything like that. Regret is something that's happened in which you've got no one else to blame but yourself. And I want to make that distinction because a lot of people, especially nowadays in this day and age, want to make them one in the same. And that's nothing but a ploy from the enemy of hell. Because the enemy wants you to think they're one in the same because the enemy wants to keep you blaming yourself for something that's not your fault. And then they want you to keep you blaming other people for things that are your fault. 
And they want to keep us in that cycle. And if we get stuck in that, there's no healthy way to grow and there's no healthy way out. But Jesus wants to set you free from the condemnation of both scars and regret. We've already dealt with the scars here. Now we're going to see how Jesus deals with regret. You see, Peter's been beating himself up, and he's got no one else to blame but himself. Because the last time that he was with Jesus, he made this bold declaration. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And he said, then Jesus said to him, Peter, I tell you, the rooster's not going to even crow this day before you deny three times that you even know me. Peter's thinking, yeah, right, not me. Then a few hours later, the mob comes to arrest Jesus. And Peter's in a panic mode. Now, things aren't going according to the plan he thought they were supposed to go. And so he follows from a distance as they take Jesus away. And then he gets himself smuggled into the court of the high priest while Jesus is on trial. And when he goes into the courtyard, there's a fire pit going. And so he goes and he sits around the fire with a few other people. And there's a servant girl sitting around the fire also, and she looks at him closely and says, hey, this is one of the guys that was with Jesus whenever he was arrested. And she said, he said, woman, I don't know him. A little later, a guy says, yeah, yeah, you are one of those disciples. He says, man, no, I'm not. Then an hour later, someone else says, this guy's a Galilean. You can tell by his accent. He was definitely with Jesus. But Luke writes, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Man, can you imagine that eye contact? I can only imagine the sickening feeling Peter gets in the pit of his stomach whenever he realizes what he had done. Verse 62 says he wept bitterly. He had served Jesus faithfully and boldly for three years, and now whenever times were most crucial and most critical, he completely failed. And this failure would hang over him throughout Jesus' crucifixion. Even when Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared in the room, he still has this hanging over him. Even when he saw him appear, he still had this sense of failure. And at the beginning of John chapter 21, Peter, he's sitting on the beach just soaking in regret. And he does in this moment what we're all tempted to do in moments like this. He says, I'm going fishing. He's going back to what he used to do before he followed Jesus. He's going back to something that, that he knew that he felt comfortable with, that he thought he was good at, that he could handle on his own. But then he gets out there. And he realizes, maybe I'm not good at this anymore because he goes all night long and he doesn't catch a single fish. And the next morning, he's tired, he's exhausted. And he hears someone yell from the shore, hey, you got any fish? He says, no. He says, Why, did you try ca casting it on the other side of the boat? He's like, yeah, we haven't thought of that genius, right? There's a professional fisherman here. And out of frustration, they throw the net on the other side of the boat and John says they caught so much fish that the boat began to sink. And John says, oh, I've seen this story before. That's Jesus. Peter says, what? And he takes off. He dives in the water and just starts swimming to the shore. Now, the boat still got there before him, but he wasn't going to wait around. And then he gets to the beach. And Jesus has a fire going right there. He says, come, sit down. Now, the last time Peter was sitting around the fire, he was cussing out a little servant girl, denying that he ever knew Jesus. 
It's like Jesus is recreating the scene here. And John says, when, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was grieved because he said this a third time. Now, Peter's grieved because he knows what's going on here. He knows that he had denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus is asking him three times. They don't talk about it, but they both know what's going on here. He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You see, Jesus does want him to confront his failure. He doesn't want to pretend like it didn't happen. He wants him to face it head on. But he wants him to confront it so Jesus can cover it. Yeah, Peter denied him three times, but then Jesus gives him three opportunities to tell him that he loves him. He gives him three commands to take care of his people. This is also the third time that he's appeared to his disciples after he rose from the dead. You see, God is a God of redemption and restoration. He's not a God of guilt. He didn't do this because he wanted Peter to wallow in his regret or beat him over the head or try to tell him how to make up for his mistakes somehow. No, Jesus did this because he knew Peter would have been beating himself up. And he wanted to give Peter a sense of satisfaction and deliverance and forgiveness. And that wasn't going to happen unless Peter first confronted it. And then Jesus could cover it. And Jesus didn't say, ah, oh, forget about it, I forgive you. No, he then gives Peter a mission. He gives Peter responsibility. He gives Peter his trust. But Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what scars we may have in our lives, the, things that, the evil things that may have happened to us. Doesn't matter what kind of regrets we or mistakes we might have made, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He brings restoration to it all. Proverbs 24, 6 says, Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Now that boats the question who's righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? Well, the definition for the word righteous is very easy to remember. To be righteous means to be right with God. And there's only one way to be right with God. And it's not what you can do or what you don't do. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your strengths or your weaknesses, your skills or your talents. It has nothing to do with what you can bring to the table. The only way to be right with God is to get right with his son. It says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead for us, we become declared righteous. Now that's possible because Colossians tells us that once we come to faith, we are then hidden in Christ. That means when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins and your faults and your failures, your regrets, your scars. No, he sees the righteousness of his son. That's how you can be declared righteous. All it takes is putting your faith and trust in him. Confronting your mistakes Confronting your sin and allowing Jesus to cover it. It's the free gift that he offers to all who might believe. The proverb says, though the righteous fall, 
Even when we come to faith, even when we, be, we, we declared righteous, we're right with God, right in the sight of God, you know we're still going to fall. You know we're still going to mess up. We're still going to make mistakes. I'm sorry, even pastors, we, we fall, we sin every day. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need redemption. It says even though the righteous fall seven times. Now, the, word, the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion or perfection. So this verse could be saying, even if you make a complete mess of your life, or even if you perfectly fall, because of the righteousness of Jesus, you can get back up. You can rise again. Because he rose, you get to rise as well. And I'm, tell, I'm here to tell you this morning, there is no failure he can't forgive. There is no doubt he can't demolish. There is no chain that he can't break. There is no pain that he cannot ease. And it doesn't matter what kind of scars or insecurities or weaknesses or regrets you may have. He can bring power and restoration to it all. We see it all throughout the Bible. The ladies can come back up before we close in a moment of worship. But we see this redemptive and powerful work all throughout Scripture, even all throughout the Old Testament. Abraham, he was too old to have a child, but God used him to be the father of millions. Moses was completely insecure. He had a speech impediment, and God used him to be the voice of the nation. Joseph was sold as a slave by his own brothers, experienced complete betrayal, deep scars, yet God still used him to save the kingdom. Gideon was scared. He was a coward, hiding in a cellar. But God declared he was a mighty man of valor and then turned him into one. God took David's biggest regret, his broken family, and from it still produced the wisest man who ever lived inside. Paul, while he hated Jesus, he persecuted the church, but then he met Jesus and started planting churches. And Peter, yeah, he denied Jesus three times, but 50 days later, he would boldly proclaim Jesus, and 3,000 people would come to faith that day. And God wants to use your life to make an eternal impact. So how many of you know this life is nothing but a vapor? But we have all of eternity to look forward to because he rose from the grave. Now let me ask you, are you confident that you'll spend eternity with him one day? Can, do you know that you know that you know that if you were to die today, that you would see Jesus face to face? And if you can't answer that for certain, you can before you leave this place today. All you have to do is confront your sin. All of us have sinned. You want to know what sin is? The, the core of sin is selfishness. I don't know about you, but I'm prone to be a selfish individual. <laughs> Make things about me and myself. But I will. But Jesus came to pay that debt we couldn't pay. And all we have to do is put our faith and trust in Him. And you can be declared righteous, no matter what struggles you may have. And you can be confident that you'll spend eternity with him. So before we worship, with every head bowed and every eye closed in this moment, you can go ahead and stand to your feet. Just a moment of clarity. 
It's a moment of privacy. If you cannot say for certain, you know that if you died today, you would go to heaven. I'm here to tell you, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead for your sins. And you can have that confidence today. So all you have to do is right where you are, just pray in your own words. Call out to God. It's between you and him. In your own words, anything along the lines of, God, I know you sent Jesus. He died in my place. I pray you would forgive my sins and be Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. Man, if you prayed a prayer like that today for the very first time, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But I am going to ask you to do not leave this place today without coming to me and telling me about it. You can find anyone who's wearing a lanyard. You can even just turn to the person you came with today and say, I gave my life to Jesus. Don't leave here today without letting someone know the decision you made. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you turn hearts in this moment. I pray that you be so thick and tangible in this place. I pray that you inhabit our worship as we close out this service. And Father, I pray that whatever happens in this room does not stay in this room. That we would be a soldier of, soldiers of believers who boldly declare our faith in you. I pray we would be a group that truly speaks the truth in love. I pray we would be a beacon of light, a city on a hill that cannot be shaken. I pray you use us. You send us whoever you, to whoever you want us to, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, all of Catawba County. Father, I pray you would use us to bless this place, bless this city, proclaim your name, and see souls saved. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who we get to be in you. Thank you that in you alone, our hope is found. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to share what you heard this week, make sure and tag at hope underscore HKY on Instagram or Hope Hickory on Facebook. If you want to partner with our ministry, you can give online at hopehickory.org.